from Kirkco Media. We have seen across this country the closing of access to public spaces where you can engage in protest. We see it outside the White House where they put up fences. If Donald Trump could close off Lafayette Square, I'm sure he would. And when I was downtown yesterday at Los Angeles City Hall, the entire lawn was fenced off. That's where you do protests in Los Angeles. And I think this is a real problem around the country. Ms. Carol Sobel, a renowned civil rights attorney said, right now, people who exercise their constitutional rights to protest have to fear for their lives. Sound familiar? That's not a quote from this week or even last month. That's a statement that Carol made almost two decades ago. The case? The National Lawyers Guild versus the City of Los Angeles. The lawsuit detailed an array of activities that LAPD used to suppress free speech and to intimidate those who attempted to exercise it in public venues. And back in 2001, Carol also said, the LAPD is at war with the First Amendment. So how much has changed? This is Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. It will be okay. Let's welcome our panel. Firstly, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. Nice to see you again, and I'm so happy Carol could join us. And also remote, Jane Elbrecht. She's an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over the world. Hey, Jane, nice to see you here, too. Always good to see you, and, and welcome, Carol. And now our special guest, Carol Sobel. She's a powerful civil rights attorney and advocate. She has repeatedly taken on the city of Los Angeles for violating the rights of protesters and homeless. After the 1992 Rodney King uprising in LA, Carol was one of the lawyers who worked on revising the LA Police Department's crowd control and use of force policies. She served as lead or co-counsel on a myriad of pivotal cases. She spent 20 years working at the ACLU, and then she put up her own shingle back in 1997. Which brings us to today with Ms. Sobel as co-counsel in the Black Lives Matter versus City of LA class action suit. It was filed in federal court on behalf of more than 3,000 persons arrested in the city. Ms. Sobel is a board member for the National Police Accountability Project and a professor focused on civil rights at Loyola Law School. Welcome, Carol Sobel. Thank you for breaking away to join us today. Thank you for asking me. Let's start with, with a bit of a comparison. Ed, our, our country was essentially built on the rights of free speech and protest. Our forefathers were essentially radical protesters themselves. We date our founding from the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre. Our founders were rebelling against uh, the established government for their rights of property, for their status. They felt like they were second-class citizens in England's growing empire. People even then, though, recognized and raised issues of, is there a hypocrisy here? Are some people being left out? Of course, Abigail Adams famously said, remember the women. There were Black voices at the time. You calling yourself being enslaved by the British? We're really enslaved. So yes, it's been a long history and a long development. That's part of America's story. Carol, in our opener, when we quoted you from 20 years ago, you said, the LAPD is at war with the First Amendment. So that was back then. What's changed? 
It's a little hard to tell sometimes. And just so your listeners know, I had a really personal stake in the litigation 20 years ago. I was one of two people shot in the face between the eyes. One woman actually lost an eye. I was clubbed with a baton. I was trampled by horses. So uh, I had a really personal stake in a lot of this. We made a lot of progress, but I think like many agencies, the LAPD has a warrior mentality. And that warrior mentality comes into play against anybody who stands up against them. And I think that everybody in, in this city is very concerned. Every time they go out and shoot the protesters, they're using more injurious weapons. And there's a new report out by Physicians for Human Rights. This time around, they used uh, 40 millimeter projectiles, which are very specific in targeting people. And we had 12 people shot in the head. My goodness. So it doesn't sound like the changes between then and now have necessarily been positive. It seems like we may be going in the wrong direction. We went from 2007 until now without the use of major less lethals uh, on people, but, but they seem to have uh, forgotten what happened in the past. And I think that's one of the problems in a lot of police agencies, but particularly in the LAPD. There is no institutional memory and they don't care anyway. Despite the problems in the LAPD, Carol, I think this is a national problem. And I think it does come from militarization of the police. And that comes with leadership from the federal government. The federal government spends a lot of money and, and does a lot of programs to train the police. And it's not just that they provide military equipment, but they train them in military mentality. These are the enemy. These are not your civilians that you're keeping the peace. One is protect and serve. One is to kill the enemy. And that's part of what has to change. As Carol well knows, police forces around the country tend to go in cycles. And there was a sense that LAPD, which had a, a notorious tradition, came to a head at the Rodney King riots. That's where it all came out. Then there was a sense that there'd been a lot of progress. Maybe the issue that she flagged that I'd like to re-highlight is that institutional memory issue. Not only is there a lack of institutional memory, when you have a really big agency like the LAPD and you're moving around a lot of personnel, there is no system by which you know what lawsuits have been brought in your jurisdiction, your division, how you have to enforce different things. And I'll tell you, when I met with a captain and he told me he didn't know about this injunction that we had just gotten six months ago, I remember the city's, the police department's lawyer telling me, well, you have to understand, Carol, we don't really teach our officers much about the Fourth Amendment in the academy. And I said, you really don't want to say that to me. It, the heart of what officers have to do is Fourth Amendment. And I think it's not only a lack of institutional memory, it's qualified immunity. It's this doctrine that whatever you did, we're going to give you a pass. You know, there's been a lot of talk about it lately, particularly in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Brown Taylor and other people. It has given police officers uh, free reign to violate rights and not care about it. Kara, let's do a little comparison between, oh, about six years ago and today, because when protests after the Eric Gardner and Michael Brown shootings uh, seemed to be populated predominantly by Black people, but now in 2020, after the George Floyd murder, it's a multi-ethnic outrage and passionate Black Lives Matter protests include people from all walks of our society mm -hmm. who finally feel that 
well, all of us must evolve. Is that something you're going to be able to use toward bettering our future? Well, you know, it didn't change the, the uh, response of the Trump administration in Lafayette Park. They had no problem gassing people and shooting them, even though they were largely a lot of white people who had come out. I think it changes it somewhat, but then I think you, what, what happens is um, when you see um, opportunists, and in this case, a lot of right-wing opportunists coming in and engaging in violence, escalating violence, it makes it very difficult for the protesters. And it's undercut uh, the support for Black Lives Matter, I think pretty much. It muddies the message, right? It, it also gives this administration something exactly. to point at. And it gives Phil Barr, who can say there aren't very many people killed, which I think he said this week. Claimed only 12 were killed. Seven people were killed by the Los Angeles County Sheriff in two, two and a half months. Hey, Jane, I'm curious, what do you think of the recent statement that Barr made where he wants prosecutors to use the sedition laws against the folks that were violent in these protests? I can't imagine what his thinking is on that, but I think uh, Bill Barr is doing a lot of things that would warrant impeachment of the Attorney General. And if I can add something of, of even greater concern is using the sedition laws against the elected officials in those cities. Yes. That is really concerning. Yeah, it's total politicization of the Justice Department, which is a corruption of the Justice Department, which is a critical element of our democracy, is the rule of law mm -hmm. and not of men. But they wouldn't be saying these things if they didn't think that it brought them political support. We are in the middle of an election campaign. They think this is resonating with someone. And talking about bringing actions against, the, say, the mayor of Seattle or the mayor of Portland, um, all these things must be speaking to some audience. Carol, do you have any information on how the prosecutors are reacting to this kind of a statement? I think across the board, they are rejecting it. But he's also at war with his prosecutors. You, you know, he did this press conference earlier this week where he said, everything comes to me. I'm the decider. I think it's aimed at this law and order thing, this Nixon thing. But I don't think it plays now. And I think the notion of he's going to get the suburban housewives, quote unquote, with all of this, I don't think really plays because I do think that people are, they're concerned as they have a right to be, but they also are very concerned about what many more people see as the undeniable uh, murdering black and brown people in this country by police with videotape after videotape. They think this is going to play and we're going to find out in the election if it does. I think they know exactly what they're doing. For a conservative personality profile, their fear of chaos is one of their strongest issues. And so law and order is very important. If you looked at the Republican National Convention, it was four days. There was a little meat thrown to their base, but it was four days of making white suburbans worry about flipping the lever for Democrats up and down the ticket because of the law and order issue. I think there's another issue at work in this society on some of the issues that were such key tension points before. You know, if you think back to all of those anti-gay measures that George W. put on the ballot so that he could get elected. And now we're at a point where the Supreme Court has said, yeah, gay marriage, fine. And I look at a lot of this too around the policing. We are no longer as polarized racially a society as we once were. People have biracial children, bi-ethnic children, 
And so white mothers worry about their black child. White fathers worry about their black child. And we are much more, you know, we're, we're coming to a majority minority country very quickly. But I think your attitudes change. You know, you're Mitt Romney or you're George Bush and you have biracial children and grandchildren. I think it really changes how people look at a lot of the policing issues as well in terms of understanding what's out there. You kid, you know, I see white mother after white mother talking on television about her black son. And I think that that changes people's experience. I think you're right. You're raising an important issue. I think the parallel with the acceptance of gay rights is similar because more and more people ended up like Senator Portman of Ohio having a gay child and that that made them think differently. The question is for this election, is that growing enough? And it appears to me in some ways that the Trump administration is doubling down that they can win one more election under the old fashioned rules. I think COVID-19 is gonna tick up. And as that number gets to 230,000 by election day, you know, most of the polling that I've seen reported says that's like the number one issue for people outside of Trump's base. But we'll see. I think what changed the trajectory of this particular election was COVID and the economic consequences of COVID. Mm -hmm. And that has changed the trajectory of the election. We'll just see, because we don't know how the votes are going to be counted or when the voting is going to stop or how states uh, are going to handle the votes they get. There's possibly a role for lawyers there as well. There are actually huge teams that have already been hired for that. We're going to hold on that thought for just a minute. When we come back, we'll talk about the slogan, defund the police. It will be Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Carol Sobel. And Carol, you've heard the cry, national cry, to defund the police. What, what is really meant by that? I think what most people mean by that is taking the resources and using them in a collaborative way that, that provides safety, but also provides uh, responses to issues that are, are, are really uh, pressing on communities of color. So for example, you know, providing places where young kids can be. Um, that's how, how most people describe it. Programs that will help get people into job training um, so that you don't have as many opportunities for the police to engage in an oppressive approach. So it's shifting those programs. I will tell you in LA, uh, when our mayor announced that he was gonna take $120 million from the police budget and uh, repurpose it to the black communities in LA in particular, the activists in the black community said, where are those communities? You've destroyed them through your gentrification. You've destroyed them through your uh, incarceration levels, running the metro through the traditional uh, historic African-American communities. 
as has been done in most cities, in New, in New Orleans and other cities, running the freeway through the low-income communities and destroying a, a community. So I think that's a lot of what is meant in, by defund is shift the priorities. My colleague and friend Connie Rice had worked a lot with Chief Beck to shift how policing took place in South LA, how they uh, worked with gangs and former gang members. And she got this program together where the former gang members would basically be outreach workers. It was very, very successful. Mm. Um, it's the Urban Peace Institute, and it's been very successful. Um, that money all got cut. Rayshard Brooks and Daniel Prude would probably still be alive today if we didn't send armed police, if we sent trained psychiatrists or psychologists to deal with those situations. How do you envision taking this chant of let's defund the police and turning it into getting experts to actually show up when expertise is necessary? Well, I think that's something that the department has to do. Um, and it sort of overlaps on a lot of the homelessness issues as well. The LAPD agreed a number of years ago under Charlie Beck to create these smart teams. So they had officers who were specially trained in each division who were supposed to go in in these situations along with mental health professionals. I don't think anybody has seen that smart team. I think the program got wiped out. Instead, they just go in with guns. There was a crank call against Melina Abdullah, uh, who is the head of Black Lives Matter here in Los Angeles, where some right-wing guy from uh, Southern United States called 911 and made a call that there was a hostage situation at her house. And the police came in with SWAT and ordered everyone out of there. It was really traumatic. That isn't the way you handle that situation. That's not how you would ordinarily handle a hostage situation. You'd bring in a hostage negotiator. They went in as if they were going to kill everybody in that house if they didn't come in. That's what people were afraid of, that they would have thrown a grenade into the house or something. She has young children. Everything we do, whether it's the community policing or the smart teams, we do a big fanfare about introducing them, and then slowly they evaporate. I don't think the police would mind not having to respond to issues that they're frankly not trained to deal with. The interesting thing is the big raises they were going to get this year were all negotiated on the basis of they were providing all of this extra services that were outside of what they usually do. They respond on homelessness, they respond on mental illness, and so their officers should get paid more. And the city didn't question it. The, the mayor at least didn't question it in his budget. Instead of saying, well, why do we have the police um, dealing with people who are mentally ill? Why aren't we sending out social workers? Why aren't we sending out outreach workers for homeless people? Why aren't we doing all of these things? He just said, oh yeah, good idea. I'm gonna give you 150 million. So even with the defund amount that he's allowed, there's 30 million more in the police budget. And the police budget is approximately 60% of our entire discretionary fund in LA. In all fairness to the police on this issue, as we all know, the policy issues that we haven't dealt with as a society, like mental health, end up in the laps of the police. Police often can't intervene without some violation of a criminal law. I also agree with you that when they go out for an incident, Sometimes you do need a policeman there, but you should have a multidisciplinary team. You have someone who's seriously mentally ill waving a pistol wildly at his family. 
you've got a very dangerous situation. That doesn't mean the police have to shoot. And I've complained for years that too often our, our police are trained to shoot to kill rather than using some other technique to control a situation. But I don't think in that situation you can just send out a social worker. You've got to have a multidisciplinary team. I could pull the cases in LA. Most of them are some black man who has no weapon at all, somebody who's mentally ill and totally naked so you can see that they have no weapon. And I guess my point is it doesn't seem to make any difference. Shoot to kill is the norm. It is the first choice. They shouldn't be trained to shoot to kill. And this relates to militarization of our police. Which just means we're sending the wrong people with the wrong training and the wrong tools. So a lot of the defund the police, which is terribly misnamed, it really needs to be reallocate the resources to the talent that we need for different situations. And I'd have to say that that's a perfect example of where you did not need an armed response. And you did not need anybody but someone who's trained on how to deal with someone who has mental illness. We, we need to figure that out. It's not necessarily a defunding. It is a reallocation of resources and a training of the talent that you need for different situations. Defunding is a terrible moniker for a number of reasons. First of all, even when you talk to people who support defund the police, the first thing they say, well, this, that's not really what we mean. Secondly, it's not a zero-sum game. You don't always have to take the money from the police to get money for social services. And thirdly, it's created a backlash. It should be demilitarize the police rather than defund the police. That has created as many problems as it has solved in this whole situation in terms of public support for it. So one of the real complicated issues, Carol, that you've been dealing with that obviously falls into the same conversation is all of your efforts to help the homeless and support the homeless in their challenge with the police. You said that when it comes to homeless people, LA strips them of their humanity. What did you mean? We tend to dehumanize people. We don't value them. We, we generalize. Uh, if we see somebody on the street doing drugs, well, then every homeless person is a drug addict, when in fact, that's not what the statistics are at all. Or for women, they were domestic violence victims. They were victims of sexual assault. Or they earned low money. They got sick. I remember talking to one young woman one time who was, she was only homeless for about three weeks. And then she got help, but she said it was the most frightening experience of her life. She got sick. She didn't work a job that didn't have health insurance. She couldn't pay her rent. And before she knew it, she spent a week in the hospital. She was on the street. Recently, I think you were involved in a case about homeless rights to sleep in a vehicle. Los Angeles had a law that said you could not park or stop a vehicle in the city if you lived in your vehicle at any time, day or night. And the federal court, appeals court, struck that case down. But my clients were being arrested, even if they were driving to work during the day. It didn't matter if they had their property in the car. They got arrested for violating the vehicle ordinance. It meant you couldn't go to court in this city in your vehicle. And one of my clients in the case was driving through the city of Los Angeles to get somewhere else. She was pulled over and warned that she would be cited. So it doesn't matter where you were. If you came into the city of Los Angeles and they thought you lived in your vehicle, they would just cite you. With all the recent layoffs and increasing unemployment, especially with people at the lower end of the economic level, are you seeing a 
increase in homelessness in Los Angeles and other cities. And also we hear about those causing an increase in issues of mental illness. If those are combining, is this problem just going to get worse over the next few months? So the Luskin Institute at UCLA published a study on what the anticipated effects of COVID-19 will be. Right now, we have eviction prevention in place. But all that's really doing is precluding evictions that are arising out of the failure to pay rent after the pandemic. What UCLA estimates is that we will see a doubling, if not a tripling, of the number of people who are unhoused in the city. So we will go from 60,000 people on the street to about 120,000. I think anybody who lives in the city will tell you that that's already beginning to happen. And the other part of that is even though we have an eviction moratorium for anything after the pandemic started, that is not excusing rent, that is simply delaying rent. Where are people supposed to get a bulk payment down the road? of six or seven months of deferred rent from people who aren't being rehired back to their jobs as dishwashers, as custodians at places where people no longer congregate. People don't have jobs. What is the cause of the growing homelessness before the COVID in Los Angeles? It is a mind-boggling number and, and and a big concern. Is it just the cost of housing? One of the primary drivers is the cost of housing. Um, We pat ourselves on the back about having a living wage. The living wage is, I think we get to it next year, the full living wage, it's like $15 an hour. According to United Way and every other study, you need to work two jobs in order to be able to afford a low grade apartment in the city. They go for about 1700. COVID is gonna change a little bit and everybody is telling me, I was talking to a friend in Santa Monica last night, that there are a lot of vacancies now because people have moved in with family, they've, you know, if they've lost their job. And so some of the rents are coming down, but the basic reality is you cannot live on $15 an hour. That is a poverty wage. My understanding is the last report from the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority identified about at least a third of the people were recently homeless because of economic reasons. And you know, it used to be that you could work two jobs, but you can't work two jobs anymore if you are working two jobs where you don't have regular hours and you can't schedule from week to week. So if like some of our clients in Orange County, you work at the dollar store and you get your schedule for the next week on Saturday, and you have another job, but all of a sudden you're scheduled to work the evening shift and you ride public transportation, it just doesn't work. These are such complicated issues that uh, it, it would just be nice to know that, frankly, Carol, with people like you on the case, hopefully these issues can at least be addressed, kind of led by a, a compassion. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. The Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, a joint authority that provides the money for uh, shelters and things, they reimbursed a shelter $61 a day per person. You do the math on that for a month, that is a rent on an apartment. If if you gave them an apartment, and let's say for argument's sake, they had social security of $1,700 a month, the most you could collect from them under federal law would be 30% of their income for that apartment, that apartment is subsidized. If they're in a shelter, you cannot collect any portion of their public income. So it doesn't even make economic sense 
to put people in shelters. It's costing us more to shelter them than it would cost us to find housing. Carol, I want to thank you for being with us. We're going to need to ask you to come back because these are complicated issues that frankly need a lot more time. Of course, thanks to Jane Albrecht and Ed Larson. Thank you to Adam Green for connecting us to Carol. We've obviously got a long way to go between here and a society that we can be proud of. But with people like Carol Sobel on the case, hopefully we can navigate this together. Politics Meet Me in the Middle is produced by Mike Thomas, sound designed by Michael Kennedy. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please send this episode to your friends. And leave us a comment. It really does help our cause. And if you have another moment, by the way, make sure that you listen to last week's show with Wade Davis. It is one of our best, and it will really make you stop and think. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.